Well, good evening. As always, it is a joy to worship with you. Um, we're going to be back in Romans chapter 12 together. If you can recall, we had left off here last time. I said we were going to be a, doing a two-parter here for not being able to fit it into the time we had. Last time I preached that Sunday night. So we're going to try to finish that up this evening. So Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, picking it back up in verse 1. This is God's word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this portion of scripture. It is our desire as your people to now from your word see but more of a glimpse of you, to see but more of Christ. Would you show it to us now for Christ's sake? And amen. Amen. So if you remember last time that we spoke of uh, verses 1 and 2 here in chapter 12, we had spoken of living as that living sacrifice, living our lives as that living sacrifice that uh, Paul had appealed us to be in verses 1 and 2. And we realized that the way in which we do that is only through union with Christ. We can only live our lives uh, as a living sacrifice when united to Christ himself, the ultimate sacrifice. Remember we had spoke of before, he is that sacrifice that when Christ had sacrificed, he sat down, something no high priest had ever been able to do. And the reason Christ was able to do it was because the work was finished. The work was finished that he had done. And so we had spoken of that last time, and now we're going to jump off of one and two, and Paul is going to uh, give us instances of what this may look like. We do not want this to just be abstract thought. That is not what I want for us as a church, as a local body of believers. I don't want what we talked about in the sermon before to be abstract thought that we just ponder on and it has no action, no fruit. 
It doesn't affect our lives in any way. And neither did the Apostle Paul want this, for he continued on. Romans didn't end after verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. He continued on and exhorted the church at Rome, and by extension us, to do these things. And we're going to see that he's going to talk about these gifts and how they work within the body of Christ. That is, Christ's church. How we can live as living sacrifices, using the gifts that God has given us, to the means of glorifying God and edifying His church. This is what Paul wants from us. This is what God has called us to be. This is what God has called us to do as His children. So let's pick it up there in verse 3. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So Paul tells us that it's by the grace that God has given him, this grace that God has bestowed upon him, that he can say these things. That he says to everyone in Rome, and like I said before, and to extension us through God's word, to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Sober judgment. This is what Paul is desiring here. Paul ties all authority that he has as an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is how he can say these things to the church at Rome. This was his authority bestowed upon him by Christ himself. He can command these things of the church in Rome. But he does not tie it back to himself. He does not tie it back to a family lineage. He does not tie it back to any of these things, but he ties it back to the authority uh, that give it to him. That is God and by his grace. Remember, he had spoken of before that these things were by the mercies of God. This was verse 1. By the mercies of God, he had made that appeal And now he he has told us it was by the mercies of God. And now he tells us by the grace of God. It is by mercy and grace that the Apostle Paul could say these things to the church in Rome. Why do I stress this? We must understand, and what we will see in this text, that it is only by mercy and grace that we will ever do anything beneficial in the body of Christ today. That's it. By mercy and by grace, these things flow from God. This is the only way that anything we do will ever amount to anything. So, Paul does not just simply tell us to be sober in judgment, to be sober in mind, but he shows us. He himself has sober judgment. Paul does not go around saying, look at me, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. Look at me, look at me. No, he says, understand Rome, understand church, that the only reason I'm able to say these things to you is by the mercy and grace of God. And this is how we also are to be in our daily lives. No matter what gifts God may give us, as we will see in the text, we are always to root it in God from whom this mercy and grace flows. And we cannot deviate our eyes from it. 
So we see that one of the first things that changes in the believer, in the person who has a renewed mind. Remember Paul, this is what Paul had stressed in uh, uh, chapter, uh, verse 2 there. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's what Paul wants. So when we have a renewed mind, the first thing that will change, the first thing that will flip in your thinking is your view of yourself. Your view of yourself. And, and it is in that you can then clearly see how dependent you are upon God, upon God's grace. When you have a renewed mind, you can see these things clearly, how dependent we are upon Him. Now, this sober-minded, this sober judgment is not just condemning oneself. It is not just condemning oneself. It is not just putting oneself down all the time. As some try to achieve, right? Some, some people just try to lash themselves repeatedly. And they think that through this process of lashing myself, I may beat the evil out of myself. Or maybe not even that. Maybe just talking down about themselves all the time. And staying in that mindset of I will just talk terribly about myself all the time. That I may be able to achieve this humility that Paul speaks of in the text. That's not how you achieve it. That's not how you achieve it. And most of the time, listen to me closely, most of the time within the church, people like that, that are constantly focused upon themselves and putting themselves down, actually have more pride than anyone in the church. Because they are focused only upon themselves. They are focused only upon themselves. That's all they can ever speak of. I used to do this. I used to do that. I'm a terrible person. That's all they focus upon. Now is it good to see your standing before God? To see that you are a sinner? Amen. It is good to see that. But what we are striving for here is not a putting of oneself down constantly, but an exalting of Christ always. That's what we, as the body of Christ, should strive for. It's not putting yourself down. It's a correct view of who Christ is. It's a correct view of who Christ is and attributing the worth He deserves to Him and Him alone. This is what we're striving for here. Understand that. If you try to go about it some other way, you're going to fail. Even if you try to go about it in that humble way, you will end with pride. If it is not rooted in a love and a desire to exalt Christ above all else, it will fail. That goes for everyone. So that, if we take this, we can see within the church, and we can see in the church today, you can always see how a person, a person measures their self by how they measure Christ. You can always see how someone measures themselves by how they measure Christ. In that if they have a high view of themselves, they indeed have a low view of Christ. And vice versa. You can always see it. High view of oneself means low view of Christ. That's it. 
A high view of Christ will mean a low view of oneself. This is what we need to strive for. The more power we think we have, the more power we think we have, the less we feel the need for a Savior. The more power and strength you feel you have in and of yourself, the less need you think you have for a Savior. This was the Pharisees' problem of Jesus' time. They felt that they had no need for a Savior. And therefore, uh, Christ was nothing to them. They simply cast Him off as Pastor Josh talked about this morning. But we have to realize this evening, as those who have been called uh, by the grace of God, that in and of ourselves, we have no power at all. We have no power at all. That seems simple to a lot of us, but go about our lives, go about doing our everyday functions, and what happens? Go about using the gifts that God gives you, and what happens? Pride rears its head. Pride pops up in these things that God has enabled us to do. And what we want to do, and what the Apostle Paul is striving for here, is a pushback upon any pride that comes from these things that God has given us, by His mercy, by His grace. It's what we are striving for here. All the things that we receive through union with Christ, we have no boast in at all. All the things we have spoken about through the past year and a half of union with Christ, we have no boast in at all. It is all of Christ for all of Christ's glory that these things have come about, that we were able to sit here together as a congregation. It's all of Him. The cure for viewing ourselves too highly, listen to me closely, the cure for viewing ourselves in a manner that is too highly is to view Christ above all else. Is to view Christ above all else. This is the cure. Like I said before, try any other way, it will not work. We must view Christ above all else. Beautiful picture of this we find in John 3. John 3. This is uh, John the Baptist here. And just for context, his disciples come to him and they are extremely worried. Because it seems as though, what it was... John the Baptist's ministry was fading away. It was fading away, and it was being replaced by Christ. He was the forerunner of Christ. Christ had come upon the scene. He had made him. He had pronounced that he is the spotless Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And now that Christ had come upon the scene, what we see is John the Baptist is fading out. And so his disciples have this question. They come to him, and they're worried they had followed John probably for a long time. And they're saying, these things are happening. What's, what's going on? So let's jump into the text. So let's see, 22, 3.22. Let's see, chapter 3. Excuse me, 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive, 
A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You see what John is saying here? All the fear that John's disciples had that his ministry was ending, and it it truly was, it was ending. It was being replaced by something greater. They say, look, John, Jesus is baptized. All these people are going to him. Everyone that once followed us have went and they've followed the Christ. And John simply answers, yes, and this is the way it should be. This is the way it should be. That I would decrease and that he would increase. He said, I told you myself. It's not about me. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. I simply hear His voice and my joy is full. My joy is complete. Do you see the humility here? Who had a calling like John the Baptist? Name another. No one. No one had a calling like John the Baptist. You'll never never have that gift. You'll never be the forerunner of Christ. You just simply won't. And yet what do we find here? Him exalting himself, saying, yes, I don't know why Jesus is doing this. I've worked for many years. No. We find him pushing the view off of himself and pushing it on to Christ. And this is the attitude that we must have. None of our gifts will compare to some. None of the gifts that God gives us will compare to some. It's as though it seems within the church. But no matter what it is, though it seems to be a very high gift, or though it seems to be a very quote-unquote low gift, we will say that's no such thing. We are to push, we are to push the, the, uh, the, the fame, the glory, always off of ourselves and on to Christ. Always off of ourselves and on to Christ. It is only through this lens, this lens that John the Baptist understood, that Christ must increase, we must decrease, that we must view the gifts of God that he has given to his church. And that they are for his glory and for the service of others. They are for his glory and the service of others. Gifts given In the Bible, gifts given to us as a local body of believers are not for self-service. You see? They are not just simply meant to build up oneself. They might, but that's not the intent of it. The intent of it, first of all, is to give glory to God, and second of all, to edify the church, to edify the body. We must always be on guard... Always be on guard to not disconnect the gifts that God gives from God Himself. This happens time and time again. What do people do? And we see this in charismatic circles. 
Even within ones that try to put their seatbelts on and put the brakes on, you can find this. What happens? They disconnect the gifts that God gives from God Himself. What do I mean by this? Just go on YouTube and type in prophet. Right now, there's probably 2,000 prophets of today on YouTube spouting nonsense. And there's thousands of hours of prophecy you can, you can comb through. You know what all of that amounts to? You know what all of their pages amounts to? Self-glorification. Self-glorification. They take the gift of prophecy and they elevate it over God Himself and the fact that they are a self-proclaimed prophet. And all you will hear them speak about is self-wealth and self-care and nothing of the things of God. Nothing of the things of God. What is the purpose of the gift of prophecy? Well, it was to reveal things to the church. It was a revelatory gift. We'll see that later on. And yet they have taken it and they have just made it a personal thing. This is for me. God's going to tell me about the stock market so I can make more money. They have elevated the gifts that God gives over God Himself. And in that, listen closely, in that, the gift itself becomes an idol to them. It truly does. It becomes an idol to them. To them. I've known people. I grew up in a what I call a Baptistical church. So we were very charismatic. It said Baptist on the sign, but it was it was really Pentecostal. I grew up with people who desired to speak in tongues more than they desired relationship with Christ. I truly did. They desired the gift of tongues more than than relationship with Christ. Do you not see the problem with that? you not see what's wrong with that view? These things were meant to serve Christ, not yourself. These things were meant to serve the church, not yourself. Never reverse it in that way. We must, as God's people... Have a realistic assessment of the measure of faith that God has given us. A realistic assessment of the measure of faith that God has given us. That is, knowing to what extent one has faith suited for particular gifts within the church, within the local body. Understand, we are not all called to go to Africa and start a ministry there. We're not. Everyone in this room is not called to go to Africa and start a ministry there. Now, are there people who are called to go to Africa and start a ministry there? Well, you better believe it. We support one. (laughs) And he's in Africa. And he has a ministry there. And glory be to God. Men and women are coming and hearing the gospel every day. That's an amazing thing. But that is not what we are all called to do. And we have to understand the measure of faith that God has given us. Not as far as goes, I believe this is different from salvation, the faith that God gives for salvation. But this is the faith that we have in our everyday life 
to perform certain acts, to perform particular gifts within the body. And it's different for all of us. It's different for all of us. But we are all called, this is something we can understand, we are all called to use our gifts, whatever they may be, to the service and glory of God alone. To the service and glory of God alone. You serve anything else, you serve anyone else, you've missed the mark. That gift is pointless. It means nothing. You can have a YouTube channel with 50 billion people subscribed to it. And you can spat stuff on it every day. If it's not to God's glory, it will amount to nothing. It won't. It will amount to naught. So, back in our text. I'll try to be quicker on the remaining verses. That was verse 3. So let's jump back into our text here. Romans chapter 12. Four through six A there. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So Paul here is going to give us this analogy of the church. And that is that the church is as a body. The church is a body of believers. If you ever grew up in the church, this is the language we use all the time. A local body of believers. This is where phraseology like that comes from. The Apostle Paul, and he, he views the church in this way many, many times in his epistles, excuse me, as a body, as connected through Christ. And that is, the reason he views it as a body, the reason he's using this analogy, is to show us that though we have diversity, though we are diverse in the gifts that God has granted to us, in the faith that God has granted to us, we are united in Christ. We are united in the body of Christ. Just as Arms, legs, and toes make up your body, and that is one whole, so we are as the church. See this again in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. And start picking it up in 12 there. Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the seeing of hearing, sense of hearing? Or the whole body, excuse me, were an ear, where would be the sense of 
sorry here. I got a shadow. 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense? Be the sense of hearing. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If I were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that thereby we may uh, be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for one another. If one member suffer, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So sorry for the stumbling. I have a bad glare there. But you can see what Paul is getting across here, right? You can see what Paul is getting across here. That in this body of believers, we all have different functions, just like feet and hands and eyes and ears. And we are not to say within ourselves, we want to be this, or we all want to be an eye. Like I said before, we all are called to go to Africa. Well, then you just have a big eye. And Paul says there would be no body. It cannot be this way. We all have to differ for the function of the whole. Do you see it? We all have to differ in our gifts, in the things that God has given us for the function of the whole. We as a church are not autonomous body parts. We are not autonomous body parts. That's not a thing. We do not see feet roaming around and singular feet roaming around and singular hands roaming around. We do not. You either see an entire body or none. And bodies that have been maimed, bodies that do not have other pieces, they are lacking. They are weaker. Right? They have lost something. And so it is with the church. Although you can have someone who is maimed and still function, when everyone is not doing what God has called them to do within the body, we are weaker. And that's not how it should be. God has given us all gifts for certain things and certain occasions. And we should all strive for the edification of the body of Christ in union with Christ. We are all connected in Christ. That's what Paul had said in verse 4 there of chapter 12 of Romans. That we are all connected in Christ. Many members do not have the same function. So we though many are one body. How? How are we one body? In Christ. We are one body connected in Christ. And this is what... Uh, we should always strive for, for this unity in diversity, for this unity in union with Christ. We have spoken a lot of union with Christ. This is the series that we have been going through. But now we can see a bigger picture of it, a bigger glimpse of what this union entails. In that, we are not only united to uh, Christ 
upon salvation, we are not only united to him and get all the benefits from him, but we are united to all those who find refuge in him. There is a connection between all those believers who find union in Christ. It is not as though, well, singularly I find union with Christ and you find union with Christ in your way. No, we are all connected in a local body. And we all understand this, I think. That's why we call each other brother and sister. Right? We have been adopted into the family of God. We understand that there's a connection between us. Although if you think of it, there shouldn't be. Apart from a supernatural intervention, what do all of us have in common? We would not be in this room together. I would not know most of you. Now, I might know of you being in a small town, but the way in which I know you now, the relationship I have with you, apart from our connection and union with Christ, we would not have it. I would not call you brother. I would not call you sister. But this is the connection that we find in union with Christ. We are not alone. When united to Christ, we are not alone. We are drawn in to Christ and therefore drawn into His church. This is why it's preposterous when people say, well, I want Christ but nothing to do with the church. <laughs> it can't happen. It cannot happen. Because when you're united to Christ, you're united to His church. And you can do nothing about it. This is how God has set it up. We are in union with Christ, and therefore, in a sense, we are united to one another. We are united to one another in this body of believers. This is how intimate Paul describes it. How more intimate can you be than your own body? You cannot. That's as intimate as you can be. And Paul says this is the connection that those who are in Christ have with one another. They are as one body with many parts. They are as one body with many parts. This is a body that breaks the barrier of any tribe, of any nation, and any position within life. That's what Paul had said there. If you recall it, I may have stumbled over it, but what he had said is that this body, within this body, there is no distinction between Gentiles, between Jews, between slaves, between free. That's everyone. No matter your standing of wealth, if you're so impoverished that you have to sell yourself into slavery, or that you own castle on castle, or that you're a Jew, or that you're a Greek, all are brought into the same body. All are connected in union with Christ. So within that, within that body, there should be no jealousy of one another. We are of the same body, not differing bodies. In that, we should find no jealousy of one another. But understand that all parts of the body have their place and their purpose, even the ones you don't see. That's what Paul had said there. Even the parts in which we cover, right, we bestow more honor upon those. Even the things you cannot see that go on in the church should be highly honored. 
It's easy to see what I'm doing right now. Me and Josh and the elders here, we get up and we preach. That's what people mainly see. But there are things that go on in this church that you will never know of. (laughs) Things that are needed. Things that are highly valued to God. They happen within this church year by year and you never see them and no one never esteems them. But they are important to God. And God has given them those gifts for that particular purpose. Even though they are not seen by men. Do you see it? Something that brings to mind is, I was only going to say this if he wasn't here, and that's my father. I know he wouldn't want me saying this when he was here, so he's not here so I can, I can talk about him. My father, growing up as him being a deacon within the church, from the time I was about seven years old to the time I was 16, every weekend almost that I can recall was spent in service of a widow or someone at the church that needed help and could not afford it. That needed help in a particular way and my dad could fix it, whether it be plumbing or electrical or any of those things, my dad would be there and he would help them most of the time for nothing. And in most extents, they would feed us. Right? This is what my father done from the time I was seven till I was about 16. Now, I can vividly remember all this because it enveloped my weekends as a preteen. And I despised it. I'm just going to be transparent here. I didn't enjoy any of it hardly at that time because I didn't understand what we were doing. My father would work all week and then he would work on Saturday and get paid nothing for it. I didn't understand what he was striving for. I didn't understand what he was doing. But the whole time, my father was working... To glorify God. And most people will not know the things he did. Most people will not know the things that he has done in his life. And wore out his body in the service of Christ. And he wouldn't want them to. He probably wouldn't want me saying this like I said. But this is what he done. No one at the church really ever knew that. And it would be easy to just let that pass by and say well that doesn't have much value. You fixed a washing machine. Can I tell you that has value? That has value within the church to to serve, to be a servant, to be a deacon as it is, and to serve the members of the church, that that has value? We don't see it that way. As one theologian said, we always pray, and this strikes me. I just want to tell you, this strikes me. We always pray, Lord, make me the great the next great this or the next great that, and we never pray, Lord, let me carry the bags of the great next this or the great next that. Right? As someone who strives to to be a preacher, I'm always in prayer, Lord, make me a great preacher. And I never pray, Lord, let me hold the bags of a great preacher. Lord, let me serve in this way, in this lowly way. Most of us don't want that because that takes real humility. That takes a true understanding of who God is and who we are. Most of us don't strive for that, but we should. We truly should. So we should not be jealous one of another, understanding that something that seems to be very minute and small is often very, very important. 
That's my point in that. This mindset can only be obtained when you push off self-value and put Christ above all else. As we said before, this can only be attained. You will not work weekends for nothing. You will not do the minute tasks of the church and the cleaning and, and all the things that need to be done with a view of high worth in and of yourself. You will not do it. And the things you do in the church will amount to nothing because they will be for self-gain and not the gain of the local body, the gain of Christ and His people. Understand, these things are done every Sunday. These things are done every Sunday. Every Sunday, there is a church in which a man gets up to preach and it avails nothing because he does it for his own gain. Every Sunday, there is someone who stands up to sing and it avails nothing because they do it for their own glory. That's not what we want as a local body. That's not what we want as God's people. 6b through 8 there in our text. Let's pick it up in 5 there. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now we see this list of gifts that Paul uh, tells us about here. These are not all of them. There are other places where Paul lists more gifts. But here we will just try to take them in their turn. The one that's going to take the most, the longest, is of course prophecy. Prophecy. That's the first one that we come across in this list of gifts. Prophecy in proportion to our faith. Right? And all these things, we are to be humble. And uh, this one prophecy, it's always in proportion to our faith. Now, I'm not going to be able to deal with this completely. This could take a whole sermon in and of itself. So if you have questions afterward, I'll talk with you as long as you want to talk. But I'm not just going to leave it there. I'm going to try to deal with it. So... Some would say this prophecy here within the text, within Romans 12, is different from Old Testament prophecy. It's different from Old Testament prophecy. It can fail, and it's more like teaching. It can fail, and it's more like teaching. And the, the argument uh, within conservative uh, circles, I would say, goes something uh, like this, that I am up here now, I am teaching to you. I'm teaching from the Word of God, but I'm not infallible. I can say things that will err. And so they say, well, prophecy is the same way. Although uh, my preaching can be spirit-led, and I pray every time I get up that my preaching will be spirit-led, they say, well, so is prophecy in the New Testament. It's spirit-led, but it can fail. I deny that. 
Adonai that what we see here is prophecy that can fail in the New Testament. And I'll show you why. One, let's just see up front here. Teaching is listed with prophecy here. Teaching is listed with prophecy here. So if prophecy and teaching within the new covenant are on the same basis, it's kind of redundant to say prophecy and teaching. Right? There's, there, he's distinguishing them there. There's teaching and there's prophecy. In chapter 12 here, they are distinguished. It cannot be the same thing. We don't have time to go to all the places, but two places I want to highlight here. One would be back in 1 Corinthians 12. Back in 1 Corinthians 12. The rest of that there that we read, we dropped off there. Look at 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church. So he gives us this list here. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. So here we have this list from Paul. And recognize the ordering here. Recognize the ordering here. First apostles, second prophets, Third teachers. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Here's the problem in the text. If we are to view prophecy as just this teaching gift, and like I said, most conservative uh, continuationists that, uh, that take that position, uh, ones that have their seatbelt on, I would say, say that all prophecy is governed by an eldership. That's what they would say. All prophecy is governed by an eldership. Well, here's the problem with that. First, it's apostles. Second, it's prophets. Third, it's teachers. And so from the view of Paul, you have apostles, then you have prophets, then you have teachers. The reason for this being is that being a prophet is a revelatory gift. It reveals things to the church. And it was for a select time and a select place, even in the Old Testament. We like to think that in the Old Testament, they had three prophets every year, and they just went to the local prophet and asked him, thus saith the Lord. It's not true. There were times where there were no prophets, right? And times when you've seen this outpouring of the Spirit of God upon his people. That's not the way it is. There were hundreds of years without a revelatory word from the Lord. There were. Certain times and certain places, God gives this gift of prophecy to His people for their edification, for their betterment, to reveal the Word of God, to reveal uh, what He wants in certain situations. And so I believe the same is in the uh, New Testament. We've seen that at the beginning. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2. Remember in Ephesians 2 here, just for context, what Paul is talking about here is he's come off of uh, uh, the first of chapter 2, thereby grace you are saved. Then in chapter 11, 
he went into, remember, speaking of the Gentiles. What were the Gentiles? Well, they were alienated. They were other. They were unholy. They were separate from the people of God. And what does Paul say? He says he's brought them in. He's brought them in. He's broke down that wall of hostility that was dividing them. And he's joined them together. That's what we spoke of before. They are now one body in Christ. This is what union with Christ has done. It's taken these two nations that were opposed to one another, that were hostile in nature to one another. It's broke down that hostility and they now call each other brother. You see the beauty in that? You see the glory in that and what God is doing? And so Paul continues here and he tells us on the basis of which all this is built. This is well known. Scripture, let's see, in verse 19. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so in the Apostle Paul's view, what was the foundation of this body that's being built up, the church that's being built up? It was the apostles and prophets. It was the apostles and prophets. Now Josh has asked this question many times. I'll ask you again. How many times do you lay a foundation? You lay it once. You lay a foundation one time. We do not sandwich houses with foundations. We have one foundation, and if the foundation is strong, you build a mighty house upon it. You build a mighty temple upon that foundation. And the Apostle Paul says, yes, this foundation is the apostles, and it's the prophets. Now, some would say, well, that's all good, but the prophets that he's speaking of here are Old Testament prophets. And that prophecy in this differing way that's kind of like teaching continues on into the new covenant into the new testament this cannot be so and i'll show you just one chapter down ephesians 3 4 and 5 ephesians 3 4 and 5 when you read this you can perceive my insight into the mystery of christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This has been revealed to the same two groups of people, apostles and prophets, and it has not been revealed to those of old, to those of older generations. Remember, this mystery is what Paul had been talking about all in Ephesians 2. That is that the Gentiles have been brought in and are now fellow heirs with the Jews. This is that thing that was hidden and now has been uh, brought out, has unfolded in the face of Christ Jesus. Because what he has done, that he has brought Gentile and Jew and slave and free and united them all in himself and made them one body, one church that glorifies him forever. This is what Christ has done. This is the gospel. And that's that mystery. Now, that mystery was not revealed to the old time prophets. But was revealed 
to the apostles and prophets of this time. That same group of people that he's speaking of. It was revealed to the, uh, these prophets within the start of the new covenant. We were given these prophets to edify the church. We were given these certain gifts to edify the church in a certain time, in a certain place, when we, don't, when we did not have God's word accessible. We did not have God's word all around us to just look upon it. These gifts were given and always monitored. Even in the Old Testament. You, just, you didn't just take what a prophet said, right? You weighed it. You judged it. And if it did not come to pass, what was he? He was a false prophet. If we had that litmus test for all the prophets on YouTube, none of them would be alive. None of them would live today. And that's just true. But they try to get around it in this way by saying, well, our prophecy can fail. No, it cannot. It cannot fail. They are held to the same standard. Now, with all that being said, uh, I know there's going to be someone thinking, just like when any time you speak of uh, cessationism, that Brandon does not believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. It's just unavoidable. There's going to be someone, when you have these conversations, they're going to say, you do not believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. You do not believe He's uh, working in His people today. I absolutely affirm that the Spirit works among us even now. Even while I'm speaking, the Spirit works among us. And He mainly works through God's Word. He mainly works through the Word preached to God's people. Now, with all that said, does God... People have stories that say, well, God revealed this to me, and God revealed that to me. How can you explain that? Well, does God still reveal stuff to His saints? Does God reveal things to His saints? I believe so. I believe so. Now, does He... Uh, does he do it in a way that he always reveals things to his saints? No. Same way that God heals. Does God heal today? Are there miraculous things that happen? You better believe it. You better believe it. But as far as the institution of that gift, I believe it is gone. Let me give you one instance. A great theologian and preacher, Charles Spurgeon. He stands in front of his congregation one Sunday morning. And he stops mid-sentence and he turns and looks to a, uh, a young boy in the pew in front of him. And he says, young man, the gloves in your pocket are not paid for. It's true. The young man had that weekend stole some gloves from a local store. He had slid them into his pocket and he had walked away. That young man then comes up and through a work of the Spirit is saved. Believe that happened. Here's the other question. Is that normal? It's not normal. Don't believe that's normal. I know of people that have been saved through traumatic events in their life, through deaths of family members, through trauma, right? But what we don't want to do is start that ministry. You see? God uses all these various things in our lives and God can reveal things to His saints, but these are not normative in the new covenant, in the place that we are today after this foundation has been laid and God's Word complete and given to us. Now, the next section can seem, and it's not, but can seem redundant. 
What do I mean by that? Well, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, he says if you do service, if, if service, uh, serving is your gift, then uh, do it in serving. If teaching is your gift, in teaching. And he goes on and on. Right? The one who exhorts in his exhortation. And the question is here, Paul, of course they would do that in those things. If you're a teacher, it's going to be in your teaching. So why is he stressing these things? What he is saying here, what I truly think that Paul is, is getting at here, is that in the very act of your gift, we must always keep this humble and sober mindset in the body of Christ. Always. Within the act, always, we must keep this mindset. Not as though you just think about it sometimes, all the time. Every time that we stand and we teach from God's word, we should think of this. Every time that we proclaim what God has said, we should think in these terms. With sober judgment. With humility. Not wanting to be like those others who strive and strive and amount to nothing. Who strive and it is all for their own gain. Who strive and it is all for their own glory. So whatever position you find yourself in, in the local body of believers, in the church of Jesus Christ, united to Him in faith, we are to always have these things upon our mind. And if you do not, do not have a place within the church, if you do not feel like you are serving God as you could be, I would exhort you to strive, strive to serve God within the church. We are a small congregation here. There are things that always need to be done. Do not view the minute things that you can do for this church as being small in glory. Do not view the minute things that we need done in this fellowship as being small uh, as far as God is concerned, as far as Christ is concerned. There are no small things. But even in that, think with sober judgment, think with humility, keeping Christ before you always. Keeping Christ before you always. And if we always look upon Him, and who He is, we can serve Him until He comes. If you are a servant, then serve. If you are a teacher, then teach. And do it all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, would You now do a work in our local fellowship? That we would not push things off as having no value, but seeing all things as valuable if they serve you, if they serve your body, if they edify your church in any way. Would you give us strength now as a local congregation that we could be salt and light to our community, salt and light to this world, obeying you until your kingdom. In Christ's name I pray and amen.